Hi, welcome back to House Wine. Uh, this is it. This is our last stop in the Loire Valley. It's been a four-part series uh, with so much information, so much to digest, and a long holiday pause in the middle. Happy New Year's, by the way. I recorded the last episode uh, on terrain before the New Year, and I didn't get a chance to wish you all, you know, the customary happy, safe, healthy uh, New Year full of good wine, excellent wines, hopefully, uh, but also wish you the very best in learning and expanding your knowledge about whatever topic it is that really lights your fire. Uh, for me, obviously, that's wine. And if you are here listening, maybe it's wine for you too, which is awesome. Uh, so like before, I am not going to go over my resources and I'm not going to go over the history of this episode uh, because this is the fourth part of the series, the last part, and it would just be a little bit redundant at this point. We moved through the valley from Um, west east or like i like to say we moved through it like we were reading a book Uh, so this is it this is the fourth part this is our last stop Uh, and usually it's here too that i talk about what's happening in wine this week but this being the first episode that i'm recording in the new year uh, the answer it really is not much Um, everyone's been pretty holiday dormant for the last couple of weeks so we'll have to wait for you know the updates the scandals the election of new wine regions Uh, to happen maybe a little bit further into the month of January. The one announcement that I do have is podcast-specific. When I started this project, I wasn't entirely sure what it was going to entail or what it was going to take, Um, and I got a lot of feedback, and I got some really great notes from people that I know on the first few episodes, and I was able to grow a lot in just the space of, I think, the first five or six episodes. So I've decided that in this year, 2021, I am going to make this a weekly podcast and up the ante a little bit. There are a few ideas that I have that are still in uh, baby seedling form, so I won't share those with you right away, but I think this is going to be a wonderful year of learning and growing, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it all with you guys. Uh, So let's dive right into the central vineyards, shall we? Normally, I would also tell you what I'm drinking, what wine I'm drinking, but I'm not drinking wine today. I'm drinking uh, tea, Earl Grey tea, hot. So the central vineyards, this, in my opinion, is a little bit more like where we started. It's a little bit more like the Peinante. There are fewer AOPs here than there were in anjou sur and in Terrain, which makes us feel a little bit more manageable when you're approaching it for the first time and trying to figure out what is going on. I find that terrain especially can end up being a little bit of a headache because there's just so many river tributaries and so many tiny little AOPs and they're all doing their own thing. They don't really seem to like, it's not like, oh, there's three, they're neighbors, but they all make the same kind of wine. It's like they're really all over the map, and it's easy to get lost, and people often do. I know I do. And for the same reason that I find it very intimidating to study, because there's just a lot to chew on, and there's no real system to it. You just kind of have to familiarize yourself with all of these tiny little AOPs and all these weird indigenous grapes uh, that they don't really grow anywhere else in the world. But that said, the Central Vineyards is a much easier pill to swallow because here we are in the home of some pretty familiar and famous grapes, uh, some recognizable wineries, and some pretty famous winemakers. The Central Vineyards uh, being the home of the powerhouse AOP Sancerre, one of the most exported and treasured AOPs in the whole of France, I would say. 
well, statistically, it is one of the most exported wines in France, but treasured is, in my opinion. The wines of Sancerre really permeate foreign markets and have become somewhat of a brand in their own right. People will say, oh, I would love a glass of Sancerre at a restaurant, instead of saying, oh, I would love a glass of French Sauvignon Blanc, and the two have really become synonymous. So moving backwards a little bit, the Loire Valley itself uh, starts in the Massif Central, which is quite a bit south of where the central vineyards are in France. The Massif Central uh, is basically the edge of the Pyrenees Mountains in, so- in the south of France. And it's a really low-lying mountain range that also consists of a number of high-elevation plateaus. And it harkens back to volcanic activity in the area, like most wine or most mountain ranges do anyways. But it's where the Loire River starts. And the Loire Valley region, wine region, starts in the central vineyards. I really could have done this series differently and started with the central vineyards and worked back out. But for some reason, the way I've always approached it was the way I did it here. I always start in the Peinante and move my way to the central vineyards. So this is where the river bends from moving north from the Massif Central to changing its course west to flow out into the Atlantic Ocean. The central vineyards is the most inland and therefore the most continental climate of all four regions in the Loire Valley. In fact, the climate and the soils here are very similar to Chablis. Vineyards here are subject to dangers from frost and hail, just like they are in northern Burgundy. So it's on this bend that we find some of the most iconic and delicious Sauvignon Blanc wines in the world. There are three AOPs here that are iconic for Sauvignon Blanc. There's Sancerre, which obviously I've already mentioned, not just in this podcast, but I also talk about it in my French Wine Law podcast. There's Puy Fumé, which is the companion AOP to Sancerre, and they're separated only by the Loire River. You have one on one side and one on the other. Sancerre is on the west bank, and Puy Fumé is on the east bank. And notice that I mentioned east and west bank rather than north and south. That's because these AOPs are just slightly below the major bend that turns the Loire Valley directionally. And then there's also the little bit less known uh, AOP of Menetou Salon. That's, I'll spell it out for you. It's M-E-N-E-T-O-U dash salon, like, like hair salon, S-A-L-O-N. So in picking apart the big three here, we're going to start uh, with the lesser known one. We're going to start with Menetou Salon. A, so we can get it out of the way. We don't have to circle back after we've talked about these powerhouses, which are Sancerre and Puy Fumé. And B, because it really transitions nicely into Sancerre. Menetou Salon is like this little arm that's just jutting out the west side of Sancerre. It doesn't touch the banks of the Loire River. It literally is just like this piece that's hanging off Sancerre. It's inland from the Loire, and they're making the exact same kind of wines as they are in Sancerre here. The whites here are 100% Sauvignon Blanc, a grape that really needs no real introduction, but we're going to give it an introduction anyway. They've only been able to trace one of the parent grapes of Sauvignon Blanc, and that is one of the ancient grapes of France. It's a grape called Savagnin. Again, I'll spell it for you because it's a bit of a weird one. It's S-A-V-A-G-N-I-N, and it's suspected to have originated in southwest France. It's obvious, even from just a cursory look, that there's a lot of crossover in grapes that are being used in Bordeaux and in the southwest, and the grapes that they're growing in the Loire, even today. Though, so we might not know one of the parents of Sauvignon Blanc, we do know uh, its famous children, of which the most famous is Cabernet Sauvignon which is a crossing of Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc. So Sauvignon Blanc is technically part of the Cabernet family of grapes, a family that is known for peppery herbaceousness. 
These are actually flavor compounds that occur naturally in the grape, and technically, in sciencey terms, they're called pyrazines, which is a term that many sommeliers like to casually throw around, like they are wearing lab coats and drinking wine out of beakers. Um, but alternatively, you can just say what you smell, which is what is sort of preferred, I think, in the uh, in the community. There's, I feel like everyone goes through a phase when they're um, a bit younger or like a young burgeoning sommelier where they like to throw out these like hyper technical tasting tones, or sorry, tasting notes that are, um, you know, uh, instead of just saying black pepper, people will say, oh, it's rotundone. And it's, it just kind of makes you, I think it just kind of makes you sound pretentious. Uh, so saying that, you know, when you're smelling a Sauvignon Blanc saying that, oh, I smell a little bit of green pepper, asparagus, instead of throwing out these technical sciencey terms, um, is good enough. It's, it's a good enough way to taste and it's a good enough thing to say. And it's something that everybody can understand, uh, which I think is really important when you're talking about wine to a table. You don't want anyone to feel like they don't understand what you're talking about because wine is intimidating enough. There's so much going on. Back to Sauvignon Blanc, it's a grape that is very affected by its climate and really takes on the environment that it's in, which is why there's a huge amount of variation in this grape depending on where it's grown in the world. And it really is a, like a superstar rock star grape. It's grown literally all over the world. In a cool climate, though, it tends to be tart and crunchy. It gets a lot of uh, green apple and sort of lemon-lime notes. The acidity can be quite high in cool places like Sancerre and Puy-Fumé. And, of course, it has a distinct, like I said, asparagus or fresh green pepper note. The British call this capsicum. Uh, if you're studying in a British course like the WSET, and it literally took me years to figure out that capsicum and green pepper were the same thing. They're synonyms. And this grape, Sauvignon Blanc, when in the right condition, just loves to soak up that hard to pin down flavor, that flavor of minerality. I've often associated minerality as being a part of the acid structure uh, and the way the acid of the wine feels in my mouth, but there are many different arguments for minerality. And I think one of the best videos that I've ever seen actually is a pretty basic one. It's from Wine Folly. Uh, if you haven't checked out Wine Folly, uh, definitely do. It's very... Uh, it breaks things down really nicely and has lots of really great uh, visuals that I use regularly when I'm doing wine training. And it's Madeleine Pouquet, the co-founder, um, actually in a little YouTube video licking rocks and saying whether or not the rock reminds her of the wine that people use the name of the rock for. It's only about three minutes long, and I'll put it in the episode notes because the visuals of her licking rocks... Um, is actually quite cute. And she's like a very endearing person, and it's actually a really cute uh, visual. But I think she also describes minerality really well in it. And her descriptions of what the rocks taste like is also pretty great. So <laughs> all of that said, we're coming back around to Manitou Salon. It grows Sauvignon Blanc, and it does it in this style, this crunchy, uh, green apple high-acid style, the same style almost exactly as Sancerre. And as I've mentioned, this appellation is almost just an extension of Sancerre, so it makes or stands to reason that the wines are virtually identical. As such, Sauvignon Blanc is not the only thing that they're growing there. They're also making a very small percentage of Pinot Noir, and they're using it to make both rosé and to make red wines. Although they're making virtually identical wines, Menadieu Salon does not share the international notoriety of its immediate neighbor. It has outcrops of the same uh, Kimmerjean clay soils that are found in Chablis, 
And this wine can be incredibly good. This is really good news because it does not have the same name and notoriety. And that means that it's usually, well, cheaper than its counterparts. Point being that if you see a Manitou Salon sitting next to a Sancerre, it might be better on your wallet to grab the Manitou Salon. That said, it doesn't tend to have producers with the same rock star status making wines there. And why is that? Well, when a region gets really popular, like NEAOP, with a lot of name recognition, people start investing money there. I think it's safe to say that in terms of winemaking and winemakers, there's a little more money flowing through the doors of Sancerre and Puy Fumé than there is a Manitou Salon, which kind of holds this like middle child status of the three. And that really brings us now to the big boy. This brings us to Sancerre. So far, we know this about Sancerre. We know that it's on the west bank of the Loire. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. We know that it makes mostly Sauvignon Blanc, that the Sauvignon Blanc accounts for 90% of the plantings there, and that it also makes a little bit of Pinot Noir, which accounts for 10% of the plantings. And that like Manitou Salon, they use the Pinot Noir to make red wine, but they also use it to make a very delicious rosé. So what else is important here? Well, this is one of these regions where the soils are important because Sauvignon Blanc loves, like I said, a really good niche soil type. <laughs> it's uh, it's a little bit of a picky grape when it comes to soils. It likes like a soil that's just right, even though they grow it all over the world. Like I said, it's just it's one of those grapes that uh, when the soil is right, you get a very tasty result. And it's also an important place for iconic producers. But we'll talk about the soils first. There's one called Terre Blanche. T-E-R-R-E-S, Blanche, B-L-A-N-C-H-E, so white earth is what that means, which I already kind of mentioned without saying its name. It's the local term used for the soil that is usually referred to as Kimmerigian clay, which is the same soil most commonly associated with Chablis. I googled the drive between the two villages, the village of Sancerre and the village of Chablis, and it's a little less than two hours. It's about 1.45, well... 1.45. What a weird way to say that. It's about an hour and 45 minutes. So as you can imagine, they're quite close, probably even faster if you take the high-speed train. Well, obviously faster if you take the high-speed train. The soils from this region are all part of an ancient seabed, and that's made up of a whole host of different sea fossils, but usually gets distilled down uh, to people saying that it's simply made up of a bed of oyster shells. And that really is an oversimplification, to say the least. Again, I've said it before in previous episodes, I'm far and away from being a geologist, but I just uh, checked the Wikipedia page for the soil, and it gave me a whole giant list of marine life that they have found in this, uh, you know, now drained, obviously, ocean bed. So there's a lot going on there uh, from a geological standpoint. There's also a soil called Cayotte, C-A-I-L-L-O-T-S, which is more of a stony soil, but it's also made up of fossils. Basically, everything here is made up of marine fossils. Hint, one of the best pairings for Salsaire is seafood. And the last soil here uh, that is pretty famous is called Silex. S-I-L-E-X. A soil that's a little bit more commonly associated with Puy Fumé across the river, but is also definitely present in Sancerre. This is a soil that is rich in minerals, and one of those minerals is flint. Think people starting fires in the wilderness, 
and or also on the show Survivor. Sancerre really took off in the 1970s commercially, and this is when we see that there is much more financial investment in the region, and this is when we see some of the bigger players come into prominence. Sancerre really began to market itself at this time as a bistro wine. And it became one of the go-to white table wines. Much the same way in the 80s, everyone had a candle holder made out of a bottle of Da Vinci Chianti in their house. I know we definitely had a few of those. Because Sancerre was invested in early, they have a lot of huge producers here. A little aside, because I study wine and I participate in competitions and have you know, uh, tried my hand at some higher level exams, I tend to sometimes gravitate towards producers that have a lot going on because then I can have their name for multiple answers. So as a producer, I really like Henri Bourgeois. Uh, they make a good Sancerre, but they also make a goat cheese on the estate. So remember goat cheese and Sauvignon Blanc are a classic pairing. And this is also a house that makes wines in New Zealand. They invested in vineyards in Marlborough, the home of Sauvignon Blanc in the New World, arguably. And uh, they just check off a lot of the boxes. So if somebody was to be like, I want a wine to go with this uh, an unknown brand of goat cheese, I'd be like, well, try Henri Bourgeois. They have both. But they're making very typical wines that exemplify this region. Are they the most expensive or the most cult or sought-after producer? No, absolutely not. Um, They're definitely a little bit more commercial, but I... I do think the wines are quite typical, and I do think they're quite good. If you are in the market to get your hands on a cult bottle of Sancerre, something that is a little bit more sought after, a little bit more rich in style, then the producer that you'll be looking for is Alphonse Melo. Alphonse Melo, uh, last name M-E-L-L-O-T, is making a range of single vineyard Sancerre wines at a higher price point for sure. But these wines are a little bit more concentrated and absolutely worth their hype. The real cult producer of Sauvignon Blanc is found across the river in Puy Fume. Now, unlike Sancerre and Manitou Salon, where they make a little bit of red wine and a little bit of rosé, Puy Fume makes only white wine, and you guessed it, that white wine has to be 100% Sauvignon Blanc. It's here on the east bank of the Loire River that we see many more outcrops of silex soils. And the wines are notable for having a very high minerality. People often say when they're tasting them that they get a little bit of a flinty characteristic, almost like the smell of a freshly struck match. And that's something that would come from the flint. Sorry, not from the flint. (laughs) It's the smell of flint and it comes from the silex soils because silex is made of flint. That was a really roundabout way of saying that, but I think you get the idea. It's also here that we have one of the most iconic, the most rock star status winemakers that is making wines that are very hard to get your hands on. Very, very cult wines that really get sommeliers and collectors drooling. And this is, of course, the winemaker Didier Dagano, who has a fabulous story. I think it's partly his story that makes these wines so sought after and so cult. As I mentioned, the wines in this region, uh, Sancerre notably, but Puy Fume, as being its sibling AOP, gained a lot of commercial success in the 1970s and 80s. And a common theme for wines that were popular at this time became a focus on production. Sort of the more that we make, the more we can sell became the philosophy of most wine growers, most winemakers. And this was true for most of the Loire Valley at the time, but definitely true for these two Sauvignon Blanc powerhouses. The focus became less on making wines that were the best, the best wines possible and more on making the most wine possible. 
And it was DJ Dagano that really flipped this narrative. He was not born into wine, and nor did he have any vineyards to his name when he first purchased the small 12-acre plot of land in the Puyifume region. He had uh, a little bit of money uh, and a marginal degree of fame in France as a motorcycle racer. Google his name and look at his picture and you'll immediately <laughs> know that this guy was into motorcycles. He kind of looks like he kind of looks like a biker. But with no formal training as a winemaker, he began uh, dropping the yields in his vineyards through selective harvesting and uh, grape and vineyard management. And he was, in his own words, seeking to have uh, more typicity for Sauvignon Blanc in the region, or the most typicity for Sauvignon Blanc in the region out of everyone else. He did not want his wines to merely taste like a French Sauvignon Blanc that you would drink in a bistro. Rather, he wanted his front wines to taste specifically like the place they were from. The goal was that in drinking a wine made from DJ Dagano, you would be able to say, wow, this wine really tastes like a Puy Fume. Not just it tastes like a Sauvignon Blanc or it tastes like a Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc. He wanted people to know that these wines from Puy Fume had typicity. And of course, this rustled some feathers in the region, as many people who were making money off the popularity of the grape didn't want things to change. And because by the end of the 80s and into the early 90s, Dagano's wine started coming in at some of the highest price points in the region, this was like a slap in the face to all the producers who'd been making wine there for generations. But it started a bit of a revolution. In an attempt to compete with Dagano, many producers started making vineyard-specific wines, reducing yields, uh, so that they can compete on the luxury wine market, because that's where Dagano had positioned himself. And it was a revelation for the wines of Puy Fumé and Sancerre, and it is reflected in the style of wines that we drink from the region today. But it's a bit of a double-edged sword, as the prices of Sancerre and Puy Fumé have been climbing steadily for years now. Now, it's not so much of a quaffable table wine as it is considered to be among some of the best wines France has to offer. An entry-level bottle from one of these appellations, again, always prefacing that this is in my market, that I live in Toronto, so it's a little bit different from some of your other markets, but it will run you about $30 for the cheapest Sancerre you can find. They, that's, that's the lowest end Sancerre that you can buy. On the other end of that, one of the cult cuvées of DJ Dagano, of which there are three, one is called Asteroid, one is called Pure Song, and one is called After the Soil, Silex. Um, side note, Pure Song is my favorite because it's just, it just means pure blood. <laughs> I don't know why you would name a wine after blood. It's so like, vampire-y, but I, there's something about it that I just absolutely love. Those will hit you around 100 to $120 a bottle. I just, you just really have to take in those names because Asteroid, Pure Song, and Silex, they sound like they're all members of a metal band or something. I just love it. So although throughout his winemaking career, he was testing the boundaries of what could be done in this region and with this grape, he also continued to be known as a local daredevil and bad boy, for lack of a better term. Dagano was looking to expand uh, his vineyard holdings and was in the Jurassic region in southwest France, looking to purchase wine, uh, vineyards there when he was killed in a light aircraft accident in 2008. Uh, basically, he died like he lived, doing weird uh, daredevil shit and flying planes over cognac. So all in all, he's considered to be sort of one of the cooler 
hipper winemakers that has ever existed in France, for good reason. He really, uh, he really gave her. The reason that wines from this region are so good at all levels, and the reason that they were came or came to be known as bistro wines in the first place, is that they're incredibly good to drink with food. I know that I've already started talking a little bit about goat cheese, but there are almost endless options of things that you can eat with Sauvignon Blanc. And one of the main reasons that it's so beloved by sommeliers for this reason is that it is very hard to make food pairings with anything that tastes green. Think cilantro, asparagus, arugula, kale. These foods can make red wine just taste more bitter, and they can make a lot of white wine just taste kind of flat as they get overpowered easily by the taste of greenness. This makes things like Mexican food, like like very fresh Mexican food, uh, with a lot of peppers and cilantro and fresh green flavors, very hard to match with wines. It also makes a lot of those classic French bistro dishes like eggs florentine or asparagus salad very challenging. But when you're at a loss for dishes like this, though it might not feel like the most inventive pairing, you can usually slip a Sancerre or a Puy Fumé in and it gets the job done because there's so few things that you can pair with such green flavors, but the green flavor of Sauvignon Blanc complements it, and the acid usually, you know, helps it out too. So, obviously, there's more to this region than just these three AOPs. It's not just Sancerre, Puy Fumé, and Menetou Salon. Just to the north of Puy Fumé, there's like this long arm that reaches up the river, and that's the AOP of Coteau de Genois. It reaches up the Loire River right until it bends and turns west. And this is pretty much one of those uh, AOPs that toes the line of what we've been talking about so far. They make Sauvignon Blanc and they also make Pinot Noir. The curveball in this appellation is that they also blend their Pinot Noir with Gamay. So these are very light, fruity red wines that are meant to be drank young and maybe even with a little bit of a chill on them. It's a category that is usually referred to as summer reds. They're easy drinking, park sipping, and they're not too serious go down the river a little bit more and it is fully bent west now and there are the AOPs of Orléans and on the north shore of the Loire uh, the AOP of Orléans Clary on the south bank and you would think that by their proximity and the fact that they share a namesake which is the town of Orléans that they'd be making some of the same wines but in fact Clary Orléans is making only red wine, and it is the one place in the central vineyards where they are making red wine exclusively from Cabernet Franc. Alternatively, the appellation of Orléans seems to be making a little bit of everything. Pinot Meunier pops up here as a red wine. We have a little bit of Pinot Gris, which pops up here too as a blending partner with Chardonnay. These are small AOPs with not a lot of exports outside France. It plays more of a role in the tourism of the area, as these twin cities of Orléans on each side of the river were a strategic point where Joan of Arc was said to have laid siege to the bridge and turned the tide of the Hundred Years' War in favor of France, uh, which I just read and found out today. So I learned something too, which is awesome. Uh, directly south on the banks of the Cher River, which is one of the tributaries of the Loire, and it meets the Loire in terrain, which we talked about last time, there is two more tiny little AOPs. One is called Quancy, and the other is Ruyi. Quancy being Q-U-I-N-C-E-Y and Ruyi being R-E-U-I-L-L-Y. And these two really fit the same category for me as Manitou Salon. They only make Sauvignon Blanc and Quincy, 
and they are making Sauvignon Blanc and a little bit of Pinot Noir and Ruyi. But the wines here are quite good, and they have some really wonderful expressions, but they're often dwarfed in the shadow of, again, Sancerre and Puy Fumi. And that's it. That's the final piece of the Loire Valley. That's the Centro Vineyards. It's a lot more contained than some of its neighbor regions to the west, and it's a little bit easier to digest, I find, anyways. So I will leave the Loire Valley here for now by saying this. It is a diverse region. There is so much going on here and so much to discover. And I also think it's a very tricky region to get a grasp on, which is why I think the best way to approach it, whether you're looking for a Muscadet or a Sauvignon Blanc, is to start with one of the bigger and more famous regions and then work your way out if you like the style of wines that they're making. If you like a Sancerre, then maybe you can seek out and look for a Quincy. Remember, that in France, they will rarely put the name of the grape on the bottle. They will expect you to know which region is growing it. But the same goes for something like Chinon. If you like Chinon, then try and seek out a Bourgoy. The regions are noteworthy are noteworthy for a reason, and that's because they're making wines in a benchmark style, and that makes them a little bit more readily available than some of their counterparts. My stomach was going a little crazy <laughs> and gurgling <laughs> as I was recording this, so... Uh, if I don't edit out all the gurgles, my apologies. And then this is the part of the podcast where I tell you that this is 100% independent. It's written, narrated, and produced by me, Rachel, which means that if you are inspired to grab a bottle of Pouillet Fumi, of Pouillet Pouillet, why can't I say the word that I'm trying to say? If you are inspired to grab a bottle of Pouillet Fumé this week, then uh, hit the review button, write a few words. You can give the podcast some stars or a rating. That's the best way to support the show. Uh, and the better way to support a show is to tell a friend that you love to drink wine with about it. So if you want to catch up with me and see what I've been drinking and getting up to, I'm on Instagram at Rachel Picard. That's Rachel with an A-E-L and Picard like the captain. I do have a Twitter. Um, I'm not very good at it. It is housewinepod1 and you can email requests or corrections to housewinepodcast at gmail.com. The art was done by Kelly Lauren. Her Instagram handle is at Kelly Lauren, K-L-Y-L-A-U-R-E-N. She's a fabulous, fabulous artist. And until we meet again, I hope that you drink something delicious. I will see you next week.